I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today I'm talking to Soleil Ho, our new restaurant critic. Today we release her ranking of the top 100 restaurants in the Bay Area. Now, this list has been a major pillar of the Chronicle's food coverage for more than two decades. But this year, our food department wanted to do more than just rank the top fancy restaurants. So we're bringing you a new list that reflects how we live and eat today and where the Bay Area's revolutionary food scene is headed. I talked to Soleil about her first few months on the job, how the list was created, and even the controversial cover photo that we chose for the printed Top 100 magazine. That's today on Fifth and Mission. Soleil Ho, restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and new steward of the Top 100 Restaurants franchise. How does that feel to take on the Top 100 Restaurants? It's intimidating. Really? Why is it intimidating? Well, you know, I I carry around that chestnut about there being 4,000 plus restaurants in San Francisco alone. And so choosing 100 from the entirety of the San Francisco Bay Area is intimidating. There's so many and have to be so careful. I don't think I'm going to sleep before we launch. Oh, really? That's too bad. Now I I feel bad because I think most people would think like, what an awesome thing to get to do. Go all to these fancy restaurants, you know, some lesser known restaurants and then determine what you think are the top 100. So I think that would surprise a lot of listeners to know that it like is literally keeping you up. Um, (laughs) Can I tell you something, though? It kind of is keeping me up at night, too, because this list is a lot different than what we had been doing. So um, can you explain a little bit about what your understanding of the top 100 restaurants list was? And we discussed it even before you officially got a job offer. Um, Tell everybody like how you were thinking about it before you started working here. Sure. So lists are really handy. You know, I, I consult lists all the time whenever I travel somewhere new, whenever I go back home to New York and just try to catch up on what's happened, what's what's changed in the interim. And so I understand the function of them. I get it. Um, It seems impossible to go to all 100, even in a year. (laughs) Um, And so for me, it was just this this huge project that seemed like a culmination of entire year's work, even more than that, a lifetime of work. And for Michael Bauer, the previous critic, that's what it represented. It was his 30 years of experience kind of crystallized into this document. And I thought that was so cool. It's such a big project. And like, you know, Michelin has a whole army of inspectors to do it, but it was really just him. Yeah. And and you hadn't even been here a year. So you only had a <laughs> few months before we were like, okay, where are your top 100 restaurants? And, <laughs> you know, you, if you think you have to go to, you know, maybe a thousand of them or I don't know, 700, something like that to be able to get to a hundred, that's a lot of eating you've done in the first couple of months of being here. Yeah, I really had to up my workout schedule in the time leading up to Top 100 publication. And now I can relax a little bit, but it was a lot of food. Uh, maybe we should have you do a separate story on how how you how you work out as a restaurant critic. But, but first, the Top 100 list. Um, as you mentioned, our previous critic, Michael Bauer, had done it for literally decades. And um, how would you describe Michael's list? I would describe it as, let's see, it's very San Francisco-centric. There wasn't a lot of East Bay representation, um, especially outside of Berkeley and Oakland. I mean, you know, even in Oakland. Um, And so I really 
wanted to stretch beyond that. And that meant a little bit more work, a little bit more time taken on BART and Caltrain. and Yeah, especially you don't you don't have a driver's license or you don't drive or you don't have a car. There's one of those, but <laughs> it, makes, it makes it difficult to get to some of these restaurants. Right. Two out of three. I am working on my instruction, instruction permit soon, so I'm looking forward to that. That's another development. But yeah, I, I really had to learn the public transportation system inside and out to diversify geographically the top 100. And I, I would also say, you know, Michael, when he retired, had built up this sort of legacy publication that um, was really higher end restaurants. I mean, top meant a certain thing. And, and you know, if you're if you're a foodie and you like going out to tasting menus and, uh, to, and some of these restaurants can cost as much as a like, you know, a week long vacation places. So it's really handy for us to be able to say definitively do this, don't do that. Top, I think to you, means something slightly different, right? Yeah. So I really wanted to interrogate the idea of top. What does it mean? Does it mean the most financially successful? Does it mean the most moneyed as far as investment goes? You know, is it the most beautiful? Is it the most community-oriented kind of place? Is it a neighborhood restaurant? That sort of thing. And so thinking about the flexibility of the concept of top as something beyond just a singular definition, that it, it does really depend on the aims of a restaurant and what the community around it wants and needs. I think it expanded the scope of the places that I really wanted to look at. So do you see this as like a, like a list of destination restaurants that people should go to? Or do you see it as more of a, a point in time sort of reflection of food in the Bay Area or both? I think it's both. I mean, some of these places are nowhere near where anyone lives, right? Um, like the restaurant at Meadowood. No one really lives on this resort. I would like to live there, but <laughs> no, nobody lives there. No real people. Yeah. Um, so there are, as people will see when they peruse the list, places that take a drive or a long ride on the train to get to. Um, it's also interspersed with places that you could walk to if you live in the neighborhood. Right. If you live in Timiskel, there are a few places on the list where you can go. Or if you live in the Richmond or Knob Hill or, you know, around there. And so, yeah, I would I think the list, my impression of the list, at least, is that it has um, kind of a bias towards the neighborhood, towards places where I, as well as other people on the food section team, really just want to go over and over and over again. And not just take a three-hour drive to get there. Yeah, there was something when I was so so. It's out today online, sfchronicle.com, and also our home deli delivery subscribers will get it in a magazine that you, is beautiful and it has amazing photography in it. Um, and 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 this isn't just your work, um, which is also a change in the top 100 list. It's also there are um, entries by other members of our food staff. We have one of the largest. Uh, groups of food journalists in the United States of any major um, uh, newspaper. And so they all, they had a role in this too. So how did you work with everybody else? Oh, man. Um, so yeah, to, to start, it seemed impossible for me to go to every single restaurant that we could consider within the time frame. And so to get around that creatively, we recruited the rest of the team to give their input, give us suggestions, and write some of the captions and the capsules about the restaurants and the list. And I thought that was really cool because it it makes the voices in the in the guide fresh. You know, there's different tones that people take. There's different things that people think are interesting about a place. 
Um, and, you know, geographically, it helps share the load a bit. At the In the end, though, I still had like editorial oversight over them. And so if there were places that I really disagreed with, like really, really disagreed were with. Were there some that you really, really disagreed with? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I won't ask you to say which ones because that would <laughs> that would betray that would that would bum out the restaurant owner, I think. But like, mm-hmm. what did you disagree? Like, give us an example without saying the name of like why you would disagree with somebody else's recommendation. Um. Well, I mean, I disagreed because of accessibility or because of reasons like you know I had heard and done research about like how. Um, the restaurant treated its workers, things like that, where I was like, okay, we need to talk about this and maybe do we want to reward this or pretend that this is fine or act like this is fine, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you brought it up because last year, some of the restaurants that we knew had had sort of Me Too associations or the chefs had been um, or owners had not been acting maybe as upstanding as we might like them to be. Um, the food staff put together a number of essays on how they thought we should look at that. Um, and in the end, they did make it into the top 100 list. But you're saying you, you kind of are going on the other side of that and saying we should, I, I don't know, I want to put words in your mouth, but we should expect these places where we're spending a lot of money to also be good social actors. Right. Yeah. Um, and I find that that's a part of my job, too, is keeping tabs and following the news. And, you know, luckily I'm surrounded by people who also follow this and feed me this information and help update me on all of this stuff. And so that is a part of what I thought about, what what makes a good restaurant, what makes a top restaurant. And like I said, top doesn't only capture the amount of pleasure that a place gives me as an individual also. To me, the definition of top should also include how good the place is in supporting the people around them and the people within them. And, you know, I know people will listen to you say that and say, well, like, how can you prove that? So, I mean, could I call and like I got into a fight with the restaurant down the street and like give you a tip like these people are jerks and that would keep them off. the Like, what's your threshold? How do you measure that? So for me, it was a mixture of looking up records you know, public records, and which is a huge tool for journalists, as you know. <laughs> I'm not telling you anything new. Um, also just, yeah, making calls, you know, asking, doing fact-checking, that sort of stuff. To me, that's really important as a, you know, CYA sort of thing, just making sure because you don't want to just re- rely on hearsay because that's not journalism. That's not smart either. And so <laughs> um, that was a big part of the reporting process beyond just eating at the restaurants, beyond having these debates. And there were a lot of debates, too, that we had among the food team, which was really funny. I fought with Paolo, our editor, about a a few things. Oh, well, do you want to say what those things are? About whether (laughs) – because I fought with Paolo over a few things, too. And I'm really (laughs) – and now I know where I stand in the newsroom uh, hierarchy because – I insisted that something should be included and something should not be. And uh, you, I think you and Paolo both looked at me and was like, yeah, nice try, Audrey. Like, this is our list. <laughs> so <laughs> so anyone who thinks I get veto power, I don't. But you do. And this mm-hmm. is your list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do what what kind of what kind of what were those debates like among the food staff? Um, it was pretty funny. I think um, one of the really interesting ones was how we decided 
which high-end restaurants could go into the guide, um, right? Because we didn't want to just include all of them because they were high-end, because they had three Michelin stars, because they charged X amount of money for tasting menus. We wanted them to compete against each other. And so those were the really interesting discussions that we had, just comparing, like, how do you compare Atelier Crane versus Bennu versus the French Laundry versus Saison and Quince and so on and so on? Um, you have to go to all of them. And it's an opportunity that so few people in the world get to have and to compare apples to apples in that case, rather than comparing them to everyone else in the field. I thought that was really fascinating how, and spicy. And, and how and spicy. And so can you, <laughs> I mean, those restaurants are all, they have a similarity in that they're really expensive, um, but they don't have a similarity in even what kind of food. So how do you compare one of those you know, desk, super high-end restaurants to another one. Because I will tell you, I think you know, I won't say it, but but one, my beef with it was uh, the exclusion of one of those two. It's controversial and everybody has their own opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think will be really great for this guide because I think Michael in the past has also encouraged people to email him, reach out to him if he was missing anything, if they agree, if they disagree. That seemed to be part of the spirit of the top 100. And so I'm really glad that we're dipping into that. So as they're, well. they're going to email you and you say, say, you're crazy. I can't believe you included, didn't include blah. <laughs> and uh, so we'll have an interesting, an interesting debate. We're also going to do a Chronicle Chats event here at the Chronicle. So our subscribers will be able to, um, it's a pretty low price ticket, but we're going to have you and Paolo and I think maybe Justin, another one of our food writers on stage to discuss how you, how you came up with these, um, these restaurants. So um, one of the things that I also want to talk about is how you organize the list. So you mentioned geographic diversity was really important to you. How else did you think about um, organizing it? Because there are, there are, you know, not 50 California restaurants. There are, you know, California cuisine style. There aren't 50 taquerias. Did you have limits in your head by like, I could only have five taquerias and not six? Or how did you do that? Um, So we did want to highlight specific things, specific concepts or geographic areas like the mission or Mexican cuisine or um, just even, I think, East Bay versus South Bay, North um, and San Francisco proper. And so like I, I thought about it, it was sort of a loose organization. I just wanted to look at the list on first glance and think like, oh my God, like there are 50 San Francisco restaurants that can't be right. Or, you know, whatever that may be. I wanted to be able to look and just make sure that no one was truly dominating, although there are a lot of California cuisine restaurants on the list. Um, I also found that the ones that we really liked on there trans mm, kind of stepped over and out of that genre and into other cuisines as well. And I thought that was really interesting about them. And so, yeah, like we highlight the mission, right? I thought that was really cool to bring out not even just like the, you know, taquerias that we all love in the mission, but other places there that are like pushing cuisine and like really um, expanding what the culinary definition of that area is, things like that. So there's some loose categories. There's some category about like really great wine lists, for example, that Esther really helped out a lot on. Esther Mobley, our wine critic, right? Yeah. And so there's a little bit more of a collaboration in the categories as well, too. I think, um, you know, one thing that people probably won't <laughs> appreciate very much is we we have uh, it. 
as somebody who approves the expense reports that you submit every other week, there is a ton of money that we spend on reviewing restaurants. Um, and one of one of the things we try to do is make sure other members of the staff can go so we can spread that knowledge out to everybody. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your process for going into a restaurant and determining if it's good or bad beyond beyond the expense reports? But but we spend a lot of money and you put a lot of thought into this. So a few months in, what does that look like? So um, so far, I after I go to any restaurants, I write up about you know, 500 words about it in a log. And so if you multiply that by how many restaurants I've been to since I started, it's, you know, about a book already <laughs> of just notes, just facts that I've observed, things that are fresh in my mind. And I, if I bring someone on staff, they are really helpful because I'll ask them, like, do you remember this thing that happened or what music was playing when we were eating that course or that sort of thing? Um, and I know that Justin in particular, I brought him on a few trips and he's already gotten story ideas, which I think is the best thing ever, right, to generate even more content and uh, perspectives from an outing beyond my own because, you know, I like my writing, but it's not the most most interesting. You know, I can't capture everything. It's pretty good. I mean, don't <laughs> tell yourself, sure, you're an interesting writer, but you're right. It is nice to have colleagues there to bounce ideas off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so... And there are other people on staff who are like vegetarian, for instance, and I love bringing them too because that's a different perspective entirely. Or Esther Mobley, of course, can tell me everything about wine that I don't know, and she knows everything. And it seems like it, yeah. Yeah. And so, do you do you go once? Do you go more than once? Does it do you de- does it depend? How do how do you decide that? It depends. A, the bulk of restaurants I go once because the bulk of restaurants are mediocre, and I don't go back. So one one bad one bad experience or one meh experience and and you don't necessarily go back. I wouldn't even say bad, just unimpressionable, you know. For me that seems like a waste of money for us. <laughs> and and there's so many places to go to. It's a wait, you know, when your time is limited, mm-hmm. moving on to the next one is is a good idea. What will make you visit a restaurant for the first time? A mix of things. I'll ask staff what is opening, what's new, and then I wait a bit because that's the fairest thing to do for the restaurant. Well, explain that. Why is it fair to wait? It's fair to wait, I think, because after a place opens, it's going to be a hot mess. Um, As someone who's opened restaurants before, it's 100% always going to be a hot mess. And, you know, you're still hiring, you still are figuring out the equipment, the logistics, just how to move bodies against each other and around each other to make food. Even that like bare minimum, is still in the process of being figured out in the first couple of weeks. And so to me, that just just doesn't seem fair, even though it is true that they are charging money for food. And that is still a constant that does matter. So when when you were hired, um, I've said this before, but not officially on the podcast, we were looking for a number of different things in our next critic because it was a really big hire for us. And you checked like every box and a few of them. You've you've been a chef. You've been a podcaster. You get the digital journalism. Um, you are a great writer. You have an excellent palate. You have all of these things. What do you think that you've drawn on the most in the first couple of months of being the critic here? Mm, I think for me, 
I've drawn on the podcast skills that I have, even though I haven't made a podcast yet. Yeah, that's <laughs> very interesting. This is only your second time on the pod on a podcast that we do. Right. Yeah. But what I learned through making a podcast, and I had a podcast called Racist Sandwich for years, was how to find a story in anything and in anyone. And restaurants are like people in that way. They are subjects. And so what I've done with my reviews up to this point was finding the story in each restaurant and finding the story that I wanted to I wanted the readers to come away with after reading the review. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's really it's really interesting because I think um, I don't know when you tell people that you're a restaurant critic, people must say like, oh, my God, that's so great. I would love that job. And you say, well, here's all the things you don't know. When I go to a place, I'm trying to find it's really I, I think about your reviews. It's about context, how you put this restaurant in a historical context, in a political context, in a in a food context, and and that's, you know, finding the story behind the story. Yeah. I mean, that explains, I think, partly why I don't go back to some restaurants, because I don't feel anything. I don't feel a story. I can't pick up on one that is strong, you know. Um, again, if it's an extreme, if it's extremely good or, like, really, really bad, then they're, they're, that's an easy story. Um, it's the ones that are kind of in the middle where I have to actually kind of dig and do the reporting. Yeah. Um, one of your first reviews, you kind of famously, I don't know, would you say call it a takedown of Chez Panisse? But it was a critical review of this iconic restaurant mm -hmm. in, in California. Can we expect more of those to come out in the stories about the top 100, do you think? Um, takedowns in the top 100 or? Well, you know, it, associated with it. I mean, there are some restaurants that have been there on the list for a long uh. time that are not on there. So are there more of these stories coming forth? I think so. Um, I'd like to space them out a bit, but <laughs> yes, uh, I think that would be a, a hell of a grinder to have people read the negative reviews week after week. Uh, but yeah, there are definitely some really interesting ideas that I've picked up on just from eating out for the top 100. Uh, now, we were as we walked in here, we were talking about your new haircut. You got a new <laughs> fancy haircut. Um, are you surprised by how often you're recognized in restaurants? Oh, no. No, you're not? Not at all. Um, first of all, I'm the only Solejo in the entire world. So <laughs> The only one in the entire world? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, there maybe. might be a new one out there <laughs> in the past. You're in, maybe you'll inspire future generations of Solejos. <laughs> so I doubt there are very many people with my name running around. Um, so that's first of all. And Do you make reservations under your own name? No. Okay. So that helps a little bit just because I don't want a restaurant to, you know, I don't want people to freak out. I don't want them to overprepare or give me an unrepresentative experience. And generally they don't, which is great. Um, but then it's when I use my card at the end, they're like, oh, oh, snap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I wish I had known. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, like my photo, as I've said, is extremely easy to find. And that's just the way it is. That's fine. <laughs> what... Uh, what do you think will be the biggest surprise for people on this top 100? Oh, man. There's so many. There's so many big surprises, but I think the cover will be the biggest surprise. Oh, yeah. The cover was very controversial of this magazine. How did you feel about it? You know, when I – um, so just so everybody knows, we go through maybe um, 10 cover choices and food photography – is, is really difficult because making food look appetizing when it's not 
just freshly prepared and the lighting has to be right. So it's it's really a specialty to do food photography. So that's one problem. And the second problem is you want to make sure that the cover reflects the the overall story of the top 100. And, and as we've said, this is, um, it's a lot different. And there are more, you know, there are fewer of those tasty menu level places and more of the rest, you know, neighborhood level places. So we want, if, if we put like a very overly designed small on a Heath ceramic plate kind of <laughs> thing that that wouldn't really be telling the story of the top 100. So we went round and round about it. The first time I saw it, I said, ooh, that looks delicious. And I love that. And then I second guessed it a lot. And I wondered if it would be um, universally appetizing. And now I'm kind of the pendulum has swung back. It's actually too late. So it doesn't matter what I think <laughs> because it's already been printed. Um, what did you did, was that your favorite cover too? Yes, um, I love the colors, just the purple and the yellow. Should we tell people what it is? Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, so the cover image is of a squid dish, squid and noodles and egg that you can find at a Taiwanese restaurant in the Richmond called Hodala, and it's just so striking. It's a top down picture. The squid is entire. Huge. It's whole. It covers the plate, and it's just tentacles everywhere. Yeah, it's really it's an interesting photo. It will definitely get people's attention. It's the first thing they'll see. So, so I think that'll be the most surprising. I think the most surprising will be the number of really affordable restaurants that are in there, which I think is an awesome and a really democratic way of looking at food. Um, one of the things I think about a lot is what will people think of this period in time when we look back in 50 years? And I think you've done a really awesome job of reflecting the diversity of the Bay Area and the diversity of food, but also how it's starting to change. What do you hope readers take away? Hmm. So this is sort of a very specific hope that I have. And it comes from my knowledge that food media and restaurant criticism has they have such an impact on the restaurants that are kind of allowed to exist in the world, in communities, in neighborhoods. And I hope that our emphasis on affordable places, on neighborhood places, on places that are owned by minorities, people of color and women, um, encourage investors to have interest in those sorts of entrepreneurs and have interest in those neighborhoods where they come from, that sort of thing. And I hope that it has an impact on the restaurant scene to come. Well, Soleil, thank you very much for your work going into this and um, for being here and being on the podcast today. Thank you. You can check out the Top 100 Restaurants online today at sfchronicle.com. Home delivery subscribers will receive a printed magazine in their Sunday paper. And everyone should come to our in-person discussion about the making of the list. You can get tickets at sfchronicle.com slash membership. A special thanks to Soleil Ho and the Food Department for their work on this massive undertaking, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening to Fifth Emission. Fifth Emission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.
Thank you for listening to Fifth Emission. Perfect. Let's do it again. <laughs> it wasn't perfect if I have to do it again. <laughs>